Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. And to check out merch in our merch store at poppantheonpod.com and join our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access at Patreon.com/slash/poppantheon or by following the link in the show notes of this episode for bonus content, access to our Discord channel, and so much more. So I'm back this week for the second installment of our girl group trilogy that we're rolling out over April. This episode follows last week's episode, which introduced us to a series of mid-century girl groups who helped provide the foundation for what our girl group is. And now we're moving on to another wave, a wave of girl groups that were defined by R&B and hip-hop aesthetics in the 90s. And we're exploring an integral part of that wave, which was TLC, who is one of the greatest selling girl groups of all time, released the biggest selling girl group album of all time with 1994's Crazy Sexy Cool, and is one that is close to my heart, one of my first favorite acts, one of the first pop acts that I really understood to be my musical taste, something that really awakened me to who I was as a music consumer and fan. So this episode has been one that I've been really wanting to do for a long time, and I'm so excited that we finally got to this place and it turned out better than I could have even imagined. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. If you want to go back and listen to last week's episode before this one, it does provide some interesting context. You don't have to. This is enjoyable as a standalone, but I do think consuming these three episodes as a trio will give you the most bang for your buck. I also want to clarify something about the trilogy, which is that this is a trilogy that is specific specifically focusing on American girl groups, and I should have mentioned that earlier. This is particularly a series about the history of girl groups in American culture. We have plans on the show, and I've heard from people who want us to talk about you know, groups from the UK, like Little Mix and Girls Aloud, etc. I'm very excited to do episodes on them in the future. We have plans for that, but I just wanted to clarify for everybody that this particular series is focusing on American girl groups. We'll, of course, be back next week with another girl group episode that's covering a wave that happened closer to the present day. So anyway, without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon TLC. When I was seven, my babysitter Zoe, a very hip 16-year-old from up the street who did ballet and smoked cigarettes with her boyfriend once my parents left the house, handed me a cassette of TLC's blockbuster second album, Crazy Sexy Cool, and changed my life. Up to that point, music had been something funneled to me by my mom and dad, all classic rock and new rock and singer-songwriter rock. It was a lot of rock. Crazy Sexy Cool, with its buttery, sleek, sultry R&B production, undeniable grooves, sturdy hooks, and playful but often thoughtful and complex take on female sexuality was an epiphany for me. It was the first time I realized musical tastes that were wholly my own. It also helped that TLC were absolutely it at the moment. A diamond-selling girl group populated by three women, T-Boz, Chili, and Left Eye, who each had their own distinct aspirational persona and role in the group, but worked seamlessly as a whole, at least on record. I wanted to be each of them, depending on my mood, but together they were greater than the sum of their parts and seemed like the most fun, hot, alluring, and well, crazy, sexy, cool thing to ever grace my ears. On many days, I still feel that way. Yeah, just keep it on, but I'll know, cool, I 
TLC was formed in Atlanta, Georgia in 1990 after a producer, Ian Burke, and his client, a singer named Crystal Jones, put out a call for performers to join a, quote, tomboyish girl group, one that was fluent with hip-hop culture and could be an answer to popular New Jack Swing boy bands of the era like Belle Biv DeVoe. Through the audition process, they recruited Des Moines, Iowa native singer Tion Watkins and Philly-bred rapper Lisa Lopez, and along with Jones, the teenage trio recorded a demo under the name Second Nature with burgeoning super producer Jermaine Dupree. Shortly after forming the group, the girls met Perry Reed, better known as Pebbles, a singer and wife of LaFace Records co-founder L.A. Reed. Pebbles arranged for L.A. and his partner at LaFace, Babyface, to audition the group, now going by TLC, an acronym for Tion, Lisa, and Crystal. The men were impressed by Watkins and Lopez, but less so by founding member Jones, who was promptly ousted from her own group and replaced by a backup dancer from LaFace's first signee, R&B group Damien Dame, named Rosanda Thomas. In order to keep the moniker TLC, the girls were each given nicknames. Tion became T-Boz, Lisa became Left Eye, and Rosanda was christened Chili. The trio had instant chemistry, and despite the prefab nature of the group, almost immediately became defined by their laid-back authenticity. None were virtuosos, but they knew what was cool, and more importantly, with their signature baggy streetwear and frank approach to teenage sexuality, they knew they were cool. TLC was signed to a deal with Pebbles and LaFace and were placed in the studio with Dupree and a panoply of the most important R&B producers of the moment, including Reed and Babyface themselves, as well as Dallas Austin, who just worked on Boys to Men's massively successful debut album. In 1991, TLC dropped their debut single, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, a blaring, ebullient, New Jack swinging block party anthem written by Austin, which positioned the girls as a swaggering, sexually empowered, joyous girl gang who set their own terms with men and had a fucking blast doing it. The song peaked at number six on the Hot 100. Within months, TLC were superstars. Their debut album, Ooh, on the TLC tip, released in 1992 and produced largely by Austin, spun off two more top 10 singles, What About Your Friends and Baby Baby Baby, sold 6 million copies and won TLC a Grammy. The group was celebrated not just for its undeniable tunes, but for its presentation of young women who bucked the traditionally neat and respectable presentation of most girl groups and who, while openly sexual, preached maxims of safe sex against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis. But while TLC was riding high and in the midst of recording their follow-up to Ooh on the TLC tip, the behind-the-scenes drama spilling into public view that would become part of this group's lore made its first splash in summer 1994 when Left Eye, the gang's obvious ringleader and most brash and outspoken member, accidentally burned down her boyfriend's football player Andre Risen's house after she caught him cheating. Despite the fact that she had experienced physical abuse and was suffering from alcoholism at the time, a narrative began to form around the group that they were messy, wild, and out of control. Lopez was also sentenced to a rehab facility for the incident, limiting her involvement in the creation of the group's sophomore album, Crazy Sexy Cool. Nonetheless, TLC dropped the lead single from that record, the sultry mid-tempo R&B stunner Creep, in the fall of 1994, and it became a smash, peaking at number one on the Hot 100. Crazy Sexy Cool, released in November of that year, largely reworked the group's sound, favoring elegant, grown and sexy R&B groovers, courtesy of Austin Dupree, Babyface, Organized Noise, and others. These records allowed TLC to evolve beyond the freewheeling raucousness of their debut, while never losing their distinct laid-back personalities or ethos of young women freely living into self-possessed sexuality. The record was an absolute juggernaut, earning rave reviews of 
eventually going diamond in the US, the biggest selling album by a girl group of all time, and producing three more indelible top five hits of the period, Red Light Special, Diggin' On You, and of course, their signature song, the number one peaking funky knockout, Waterfalls, the catchiest, most seductive single ever written about gang violence, the AIDS epidemic, and dying too young. However, as would become this group's hallmark ebb and flow, while Crazy Sexy Cool was setting the world on fire, things were not so peachy out of the spotlight. Due in large part to shitty deals signed with both LaFace and Pebbles, who at this point was no longer even involved with the day-to-day of the group, TLC became settled with crushing financial obligations even as their records were flying off of shelves. And at the peak of Crazy's success in 1995, TLC filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. This furthered the dual public narrative where they were at once one of the most defining acts of their generation and also one giant self-destructive calamity after another. All of this financial strife, along with Left Eye's growing desire to go solo, led TLC to a five-year hiatus between Crazy Sexy Cool and their third album, 1999's Fan Mail. That record, too, arrived in a flurry of controversy with Left Eye openly disavowing parts of the record and publicly airing grievances with Chili and Tivas even before the album dropped. Still, a testament to both how beloved this group was and the undeniability of their music, Fan Mail turned into yet another massive success for TLC. Responding to the futuristic electronic sound of R&B and pop that had emerged in the intervening years since their last record, thanks to super producers like Timberland, Pharrell, and Darkchild, Fan Mail explicitly leaned into new sonic textures and themes. Austin and others gave TLC stuttering electronic R&B productions over which the women, who took a larger role in the songwriting process, could address both classic themes of romance, sex, and trifling men, but also disconnection in the internet age, body dysmorphia, and their own prolonged hiatus. Fan Mail sold 10 million records worldwide and featured two chart toppers, the almost Lilith Fair-esque self-empowerment anthem Unpretty and the kiss-off anthem for the ages, the joyously eviscerating No Scrubs. Notoriously, girl groups and boy bands often aren't long for this world. Keeping a collection of artists who often come together as teens on the same page for an extended period of time is nearly impossible. It's frankly mind-boggling that TLC lasted and sustained success for as long as they did. And tragically, we'll never know if that longevity would have continued past fan mail because two years later, while on a journey of spiritual self-discovery in Honduras, Lisa Lefty Lopez tragically died in a car accident. At the time of her passing, the group had been working with limited involvement from Left Eye on a fourth album, 3D, which was released in 2002 as a tribute to Lopez. The record did not come close to matching the success of its predecessors, proof positive of TLC's unique egalitarian nature in which it could not effectively function with a part missing. Since then, Chili and T-Boz continue to tour as TLC to this day and even released a self-titled fifth album in 2017. TLC is the fifth best-selling girl group of all time. They have moved 
moved to more than 30 million albums in the U.S. alone. The band has nine top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot 100, four number one singles, four multi-platinum albums, and were the first girl group to receive a diamond certification by the RIAA. They won four Grammy Awards, five VMAs, an American Music Award, and an MTV Legend Award. Billboard ranked TLC one of the greatest musical trios of all time. Here with me to discuss the music, legacy, and impact of one of the most iconic girl groups in pop history, TLC, is the New Yorker's Doreen San Felix. Okay, I am here once again with staff writer for the New Yorker, Doreen San Felix. Doreen, welcome back to the show. I am so happy to be back. I'm hoping that it won't be as long next time in between our episodes. I think we did our Renaissance episode. Well, it would have been July, right? Yeah, I think it was July or early August. And it was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the show. You totally made me shift a lot of my thinking about an artist that I've done a lot of thinking about. So (laughs) of course, you're so brilliant. So I'm not surprised you did that. But that episode is one of my personal favorites. And I know is a big, big fan favorite, one of our most popular episodes ever. So this is truly a pleasure and also a pleasure to have you on today. Because as I was sort of mentioning to you before, we started recording. This is an act that has deep personal resonance for me. Mm -hmm. I was eight years old and I had this really cool babysitter named Zoe and she lived up the street and Zoe was so, so cool. She was a ballet dancer. She ended up going to SUNY Purchase to do ballet and She had a cool boyfriend who would sneak (laughs) over and they would smoke cigarettes in the backyard once my parents left. And I just thought she was the coolest person ever. And she just introduced me to a lot of really important cultural stuff that formed my identity, one of which was the movie Clueless. And the second of which was she gave me crazy, sexy, cool. Wow. And it was... Baptism, isn't it? Literally, (laughs) it was like a baptism because up to that point... My music had been informed largely by my parents. I was seven or eight. So all the music I had been into to that point was stuff that they got me into, like classic rock stuff or funk Stevie Wonder and then Alanis Morissette, <laughs> that kind of singer songwritery stuff. Right. And this was the first record that was mine, that this is my music, that is my taste. And I really think back on this album in particular as the foundation of like the moment I realized like what I loved about music that was different than what I was being fed by my parents or family and just remember thinking that they were the absolute coolest group of people on the planet. I wanted to be them. I wanted to be in the band. (laughs) And this music was just the apex of sonic history. Nothing had sounded better to me in my whole life. So I just wanted to share that up top because this is really, really close to my heart. Do you have particular memories of growing up with TLC? I love the intensity of your origin story because when I think about TLC, I think part of the reason why people in our generation were so drawn to them was because they really represented the notion of bifurcating your emotions just in that title, crazy, sexy, cool. I think we were all just like, oh, I can be crazy while also being sexy, while also being cool. Mm. Real zeitgeist shift. And so my story isn't as beautiful as that. It's really kind of playful and antic in the tradition of Lisa Lopez. But so I would have been eight or nine when No Scrubs came out. I went to a little rinky-dink Catholic school in Canarsie, Brooklyn. And the girls, obviously, we like found street feminism basically through the song. 
as you may or may not remember, there was a sort of diss track in response to it. Yes. <laughs> no pigeons by Sporty Thieves. And we used to have these essentially music battles during recess in our playground, which was just the parking lot of our school. And the girls would stand on one side and we would be screaming, you know, scrubs and the boys would be on the other side screaming to no pigeons. So we had this battle of the sexes. spectacle that we did every recess for weeks. And I have these memories of our teachers who are probably like 24, 25, just staring at us slack jawed, watching us sort of act out the performance of gender roles before we even really understood what we were doing. That is the most adorable thing. And it's so perfect because what's so funny about No Scrubs is it's like, here's what a scrub is. It really (laughs) helps you lay out some of these gender roles in a very clear, almost academic way. It's like, hey, a scrub is a guy who thinks he's fly. He's also known as a buster. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I remember learning a lot about girls want guys to have money and behave a certain way. And I love that sort of as a window into TLC as a group that really set their own terms in romantic relationships. And also, I love the way that they're a group of women who were role models for us as children who didn't just center their music and identity around men entirely. No Scrubs obviously had that vibe to it. But when we first meet these women, a lot of their music is about relationships with friends, about being sexually empowered and thinking about men just kind of as objects of their sexual desire. There were ways in which they defy a lot of girl group history that came before them in which many girl groups of the 50s and 60s were kind of centered around these ideas of waiting for men to send them a letter or call them on the phone or the way that they were essentially in sexual dynamics. If you think about the Shirelles, will you still love me tomorrow? All kind of victims of men's agro-sexuality and sort of felt like pawns in a bigger game. Listening back to TLC this time, they really flipped the script on some of those girl group dynamics where they were the sexually empowered ones, they were setting the terms for sex and romance, and they were also interested in female friendship, they were interested in ideas of preaching safe sex, and they were interested in fun. They were so much fun. You listen to Ooh on the TLC tip and you are just completely consumed by the infectious nature of how much fun they're having just being goofballs, playing with their gender presentation. They really lean into that idea of just ebullience in their music and In doing so, I feel like they also fly in the face once again of the prim, zipped-up Diana Ross version of girl group dumb. They really represent kind of a flipping and a rewriting of a lot of the rules of girl group history. That was something that was really on my mind this time. Absolutely. I think about that a lot, even just in terms of where they debuted in history of the late 20th century in music. And it's just the perfect confluence of this very amorphous thing that we often call the hip-hop aura. Yeah, right. Sort of intercepting a girl group who had they debuted maybe even 10 years earlier would not at all been coming out with songs like Shock That Monkey on your debut. So I think that they were both 
renegades within the tradition of the three girls, matching hairstyles, matching outfits in that sense. But at the same time, they were really precocious students of the hip hop feminism that we saw coming from figures like Salt and Peppa and the like. Yeah. And not lost on me that Mary J. Blige, I felt like is another important artist that debuts right around the same time. This is a moment where R&B and pop figures are finally putting their arms around hip hop culture and saying, yes, we embrace this. This is part of us. And this is something that we can incorporate into our more traditional versions of R&B and pop stardom. And then the other thing that I was going to say is that they are a group that rewrites the sort of interchangeability that some of these girl groups got mm-hmm. kind of pegged with when they were Svengali by people like Phil Spector or people like Barry Gordy and they were often replaced against their will or Mm -hmm. shuffled around and made to look interchangeable with one another. This is a group that very front and center was like, here are three women with three very distinct roles, three very distinct personalities. No one felt like they were more important than the other one and they couldn't exist without the chemistry of that particular threesome. We'll talk about how that plays out exactly, but it's fascinating to me that none of them really had a successful solo career career after the group there was something very important about the alchemy of the three of them and the very distinct role that each of them played and that you could feasibly have been in our age group and looking up to this group and having any three of them be your favorite it was not a Beyonce situation it was not a Justin Timberlake situation it was not a Diana Ross situation they were very egalitarian in terms of how they presented themselves and how people related to them there was no one part that was more important than the others in terms of how we were absorbing them. And that's also something that I think helps rewrite girl group history in a lot of ways. And the other thing that kind of is the sad undertone of it is that the one thing that they aren't able to fully rewrite about girl group history is the history of black women in these girl groups being exploited, Mm -hmm. being taken advantage of financially. One of the things that sort of defines the group is this behind the scenes shit show that happened with their shitty record deal with a lot of the ways that they had some of the most successful music of the 90s and ended up bankrupt in the middle of it. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of ways in which they squeeze neatly into some girl group tropes and some girl group history and sort of sad, fucked up ways, but also so many incredible ways in which they rewrite that history. And I'm super psyched to get into all of the ways that that transpired over their career. So I think my first question for you is, who is this group? To the extent that you know, who are these three women? Do we know anything about how they grew up that kind of helps us understand what makes them into the musicians that create this very unique alchemy in this group? Right. So I think that's something that's been erased in the popular history of TLC is how important the word that gets thrown around to describe the city is Mecca. Atlanta is to their genesis. And so you see these women, three different women from different parts of America, basically being drawn to this magnet city. Mm. I think the person whose history most closely aligns to our notion of how the little girl from the middle of nowhere becomes a superstar is Lisa Lopez, who was very much trained and raised by this super domineering militaristic father to be successful. Joan Morgan did a vibe program profile of TLC right before Crazy Sexy Cool comes out. And I love that profile for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that 
the cover photo is of the three of them and Lisa's in the middle and she's wearing a fireman's hat. And the title of the story is The Fire Next Time. So it's a very winking, knowing. Oh, interesting. Yes. Reference to an event that we will discuss later in this episode. We certainly will. Right. So Lisa is the one she's born. She talks about in that story, everybody being so enamored with this baby whose eyes were all black, right? There's no whites in her eyes. They almost look like a special effect when you see footage of her. And her father was very much persuaded by the people in his life to make sure that she succeeded. And so she has that more typical at the age of five, you have a keyboard, you're teaching yourself how to learn to make music, you're playing every instrument. But at the same time, you are being stifled, repressed by this person who wants you to be the picture of excellence. And so you kind of run away, right? They all have this element of being incredibly young also, which is something that we don't always put as much emphasis on the age of these girls when they start these groups. So they're all teenagers, right? And she gets to Atlanta and then you have Tian Watkins, who is from Iowa originally. Yeah, she's from Des Moines, Iowa. Right. She's in Atlanta doing hair. She's not necessarily on that same kind of intense trajectory that you would see in Lisa. And then you have Chili, who is from the area, actually. And she's a dancer. She's actually dancing for one of the first artists that was premiered on LaFace Records. And so what's so fascinating about TLC is exactly what you said. There's a symbiosis that seems almost natural that you don't get with a lot of girl groups. You don't see an extensive history of them going through the boot camp to try and get that harmony together. The distance from when they were discovered, quote unquote, to the debut of their album is actually not that long. And of course, we have the figure of Pebbles, L.A. Reid's ex-wife, who (laughs) I wonder if it's progress to think of her as being the wannabe Svengali. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) She's the Barry Gordy, Phil Spector figure in this story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is progress. Yeah, because you can be a shitty music executive type and still be a woman, I guess. (laughs) Feminism. That's feminism, as we know. Yeah. So... What is the sort of status of girl groups in this period, in the late 80s, in the early 90s, just preceding TLC? We talk on the show a lot about how girl groups come in waves. There's groups of them that sort of arise at once. They have a lot of things in common with them. Then culture loses interest. Then there's revivals. Again, there's waves. They have things in common with them. Are there girl groups just preceding TLC that feel like important groundwork? Or not even just girl groups, because I think maybe boy bands as well are an important element here. Are there groups? that inform what Crystal Jones, her friend Ian, and then eventually Pebbles are going to come into in terms of like how they envision this group? Right. So I think that the late 80s into the early 90s are kind of an interesting fallow period in the history of the girl group, right? We're not in the heyday of the 60s. And we're right about to be on the precipice of this term, which has been unduly feminized and called New Jill Swing. So (laughs) you have the New Jack Swing spearheaded by Teddy Riley in the 80s, which does bring us a lot of boy bands. And what's interesting about TLC is that there's one girl group that never succeeded that I always think of being as their progenitor, which is Princess Girl Group. Right. Oh my God, I didn't even think of this. Right, because obviously Prince had this idea to sort of sublimate his interest in femininity and sexuality into Vanity Six. They 
obviously descend from the models that we see in the 60s, but they are so much more, I would say, aggressive with their sexual presence. There is a lot more of a current in that single that basically nobody listened to called He's So Dull, which is about questioning, challenging male sexual authority. And also the way that they were presented, obviously Prince and Rick James have their ideas about (laughs) these fantasies that they wanted to convey via these three artists. But I do think that Vanity Six didn't have that sense of monotony or monochromeness to the way the visual spectacle of the trio was. And so to me, there's like a pretty uninterrupted line from a song like Nasty Girl, which is their most famous to some of the songs that you see on the TLC tip, which are reorienting the drama of sex from the perspective of the man to the perspective of the sexually empowered woman. And it's never really successful. And to me, TLC almost seems to have been the more successful experiment, particularly because they were a lot more in touch with what was happening in hip hop. To again, reference Salt and Pepper, which is just so huge right. and also is the progenitor of that really ebullient, super aggressive female stage presence. I'm so interested by all of these groups that you brought up for so many reasons. Vanny Six, amazing, important act to bring up here. I think bringing up New Jack Swing and these boy groups from the mid and late 80s, I'm thinking about New Edition and then very particularly Belle Biv DeVoe, it feels like there's an embrace of hip hop aesthetics that's sort of inherent in New Jack Swing because that's kind of what New Jack Swing is doing is bringing hip hop, R&B and pop together into one thing for the first time. Obviously, incredibly foundational and important important moment for pop music history because the union of those three things has now defined the last 30 years of pop music, basically. But it seems like male singers were more open to embracing hip-hop aesthetics into their music before that felt totally approvable by female traditional singers. So it's like you have Salt and Pepper, but they're viewed as rappers. They're definitely a girl group, but the two of them are presenting themselves as rappers with a DJ. They have very particular aesthetics that are nodding at being rappers. So I think one of the things that feels pertinent to why TLC is such a seminal and important group, just musically speaking in history, is there's Lisa in the group who is, you know, a rapper and that's her thing. But the group is presenting as a singing, traditional, in some ways, girl group that just fully embraces the style of hip hop. And that's what we were sort of talking about that connects them to an artist like Mary J. Blige. This is a moment where people that we more traditionally thought of as soul singers in the tradition of that particular mode that we're all familiar with kind of said hip hop is the center of popular culture. This is where this is all moving. This is what pop music is. And And it's acceptable for women who present in a more traditional way and sing in a more traditional way to also embrace these aesthetics in the same way that male groups like a Belle Biv DeVoe were doing just prior to them. Girl, I must warn you, I sense something strange in my mind. As much as there's a lot of fluidity between the three of them on that first album, you get a little bit of rapping from Chili and T-Boz. 
Obviously, Lisa Lopez was always doing background vocals, although she wasn't as known as much for being a vocalist. What I think is really fascinating about each member is that they sort of are the totems of each element in the fusion, because you have Chili, who's more of a classic mezzo-soprano balladeer, and then you have T-Boz, who has that voice where it feels more appropriate to call her a vocalist than a singer, because... Mm. (laughs) Which, a little bit of a dig. Not really, though. She's at once so distinctive and somewhat off-key. Yeah, and the (laughs) most... The most distinctive singer that we have in our generation is Rihanna, right? Nobody's going to say that she is like a spectacular singer, but that's not the point. And so T-Boz is that. And then you have Lisa, who's the rapper. And so disambiguated or atomized in each of them is every element of the fusion. And then they come together to make this sound. Incredible that you brought up Rihanna because I was thinking about her so much during this whole thing because TLC's thing is leading with cool factor. They are the coolest and that's the most important element of the whole thing in some ways. And I think that that's so much the Rihanna thing. Rihanna's pop startup is about being the coolest motherfucker on earth. And I think that that is something that TLC really traded on. It wasn't about virtuosity necessarily. It was about all consuming cool factor. That was a very genuine and authentic, not put on coolness. They knew what was cool. They were cool. They just oozed it. They didn't have to try that hard. And that is so much a connection to Rihanna that I was thinking about a lot. So the way that this group kind of happens is in 1990, there's this producer, Ian Burke, and he has this client, Crystal Jones, it's so funny that the origins of this group have nothing to do with these three women at all, (laughs) conceive essentially of exactly what we're talking about. They want to do a tomboyish, quote unquote, hip hop inflected girl group as an answer to the Belle Biv DeVoe, New Jack Swing boy bands of this particular period. Mm -hmm. And basically they put out a call to cast two other women to join Jones in the group. And the people that they end up selecting are Watkins, T-Boz, and Lisa Lopez. And the group is called Second Nature originally. Mm -hmm. And they began working with another really important key player in this story, who's Jermaine Dupree. Tell us about Jermaine. So what I think is always really interesting about Jermaine Dupree is that he has retroactively really imprinted himself on the story of the genesis of TLC, which is true. They do have this demo that they record with him. But at the time, Jermaine Dupree, who is like 19 years old, yep. <laughs> 19 or 20 is like not as interested in this group as he is in Criss Cross, mm-hmm. which is his first major group way before his Usher era, all this stuff or whatever. Right. Jermaine Dupri is really essential in what we deem as this Atlanta sound, this fusion sound, and they record this demo. It's so interesting to think about Jermaine as another figure that's helping the hip-hop crossover movement. Groups like this are such humongous foundational elements in the way that hip-hop is knocking on the door of Top 40, getting close to an era where hip-hop is going to become the centerpiece of pop music in the mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. Jermaine's such a crucial player in that field. And then the other really important player here is L.A. Reed's wife, mm-hmm. Pebbles, who is a singer in her own right. I don't know if the girlies remember giving you the benefit, of course. Of course, one of my all-time favorite songs of this era.
So she had been a successful R&B singer in the 80s and early 90s. And she started basically a management company called Pepitone. And she ends up managing them, bringing them to Babyface and L.A. Reid, who are founding LaFace. They're both incredibly successful producers and songwriters in their own right, who have worked with a lot of these groups that we've mentioned. They're involved in the R&B and hip-hop space at this particular moment. Obviously, Babyface is already one of the biggest songwriters and producers of his time. He's worked with everyone from Whitney. He's had his own successful music, whatever. So they bring the group, which at that point is T-Boz, Lisa, and this girl, Crystal, and basically Babyface and L.A. Reid are like, we see potential in T-Boz and Left Eye, but this other chick's got to go. <laughs> and exactly. so they can her, essentially. The founding member of the group, they can. And that's my understanding of it. Right. The whole reason why there was even an impetus to create this group behind this idea of the kind of tomboyish Black girls. And then what I think is so fascinating is the story of Chili, who was a dancer for Damien Dame, who was the first artist that Babyface and L.A. Reid signed, she comes in not even necessarily on the vocalist tip and I think is so crucial to what TLC is also really known for, which is that incredible laid back choreography. Mm. The music video was so essential to TLC's rise. I love their debut album. It is a very chaotic album. Oh my God. <laughs> There's a lot of noise on it. And I think that the videos help to sort of coalesce and cohere a sound that I think was mysterious and odd when you look at the debuts of comparable girl groups in that time like SWB I don't know Escape those girls are coming very much from the gospel tradition yes we're giving you our resume basically on our debut album TLC isn't doing that. And so I think the stage presence of a chili, the professionalism that she brought as a dancer was really essential to the visual aspect of their debut. Yeah, I was reading this quote from Ann Powers when she reviewed fan mail and she sort of described it as chili is the spun sugar ingenue her clear voice exquisitely love struck left eye is the tomboy the rapper who spars happily with the fellas and tivas walks the line between these two extremes her indelible down low growl somehow both male and female libertine and self-possessed so how would you describe the sound of ooh on the tlc tip their debut album so there are certainly ballads on this album, but the predominant sound is that high hat, really high energy, New Jack Swing influenced, almost new age parliament funkadelic sound, that funk. And what I think is really interesting is how the fashion at that time mirrors what you're seeing. It gives you a key to understanding how to listen to the music. So very famously, they're wearing big oversized pants, Lisa left eye Lopez is covering her left eye with a condom. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, there's this narrative that gets attached to this album that says it's more cartoonish. This is the album that they put out before they became women. And I think that's a little bit of a simplification Yes, because a lot of what is being done is taking the subdued meditative stance that the R&B girl group has taken historically and flipping it and looking at those same questions, those same insecurities, but putting them in a higher register. Yeah, it's so interesting, the Technicolor thing. The thought that came to my mind, weirdly, is Cindy Lauper's early 80s Technicolor fusion. Super bright colors, blaring in-your-face aesthetics, and a real sense of goofiness and playfulness. 
this. And I think that that's such an important element here, especially in contextualizing them in girl group history where there's a real sense of seriousness and of virtuosity. Like I think of Coco ripping weak in almost a gospel sense, or I think of Diana Ross literally never an eyelash out of place. These girls were really in the spirit of being punk-ass kids who were having a really, really fun time. And I think that that was the permeating look of the group in the baggy clothes that are all these different colors and the sort of vibe of this music. You think about a song like Ain't Too Proud to Beg. I think that song leads with how much fucking fun it is. It just sounds like a block party. It really sounds like a group of girls that are just having a rip roaring good fucking time and also having a great time being like, we're not afraid to demand what we want sexually in this way that I think was pretty unique feeling at that particular moment. They really got up there and the whole conceit of this song is, if I wanna fuck, I'm not too proud to ask to fuck. Which is like so fascinating to me thinking about some of these girl groups from the 60s where the ideas of sex that were being presented on these records was men want this. I'm not sure that I want this, but I have to kind of give it to him. I don't know whether he's going to still love me after I wake up tomorrow morning. And that's the Shirelles. That's so many of these records from this period. And so it is so incredibly gratifying to listen to a group of young women who are just on record being like, I'm the top. I'm in control of this sexual dynamic. And I feel like that's such like a huge powering force behind Ain't Too Proud to Beg. I think the other thing that we should bring up here in this moment is Dallas Austin, who comes in as one of the primary collaborators and is sometimes known as the fourth member of TLC, super prolific and fascinating producer in his own right, but sort of creates this soundscape that's very unafraid to be full on hip hop, which is so incredible about this. Ain't Too Proud to Beg has like seven samples going on. It's only the great maximalist dance hip-hop songs of this moment can. There's so much happening here that just feels incredibly distinctive and singular. I guess that's the thing that I feel. It's like TLC's identity right from that first song feels very clear and why we're supposed to like them and what their role is in the firmament of girl group history and of pop at this particular moment and pop feminism is so crystallized right from the jump. And that authenticity is so fascinating coming from a group that is kind of prefab. That was the other thing that I kept thinking. There's such an interesting balance here between a group that didn't invent itself, really doesn't write. Lisa writes her raps, but especially early in the process, T-Boz and Tilly are not super involved in the writing process. And yet the group feels so wholly formed and clear in their identity and comfortable in their skin, I guess. And that was one of the things that really came across to me on this record. Yeah. And there's something I think about that swagger that it's really impossible for me to think of, A, because of our age, but also B, given how the TLC story is sort of the shape that it took. It's impossible for me to not hear the future in the past. Mm. So there is something about that swagger that you don't hear it in the music necessarily, but there is an element of the prefabrication allows for as much as we feel an authenticity with these like girls being crazy. There is an element of inauthenticity, mm. which is to say, even a song, I love this song so much, Hat to the Back.
the guy wants them to be this kind of fantasy and they present themselves as that fantasy in the music video, right? They present themselves as a like sexy girl group as a way of sort of countering what men want from them. It's interesting to listen to that song in the context of the songs that come up. A song like Creep. I love this idea of launching them as these super confident women who were the auteurs of the sexual experience and then having life happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chili getting in a relationship with Dallas Austin. Lisa Lopez is obviously explosive relationship and seeing that edifice crack. I think that's a fascinating way to look at not the downside of the empowerment gospel, but it's not tenable for forever. Yes. As you grow from being a teenage girl to being a woman, there are certain needs and desires that can't necessarily be provided for within that rah-rah feminism framework of the initial album. Totally. It gets more complex and sticky, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> the thing I love about Hats at the Back, which I'm so glad you brought up, is as you're mentioning the interplay between authenticity or performed authenticity and inauthenticity is the meta-commentary of the self-awareness around what they're presenting and how they're presenting new versions of femininity on this record. There's so many of these songs that explicitly reference we don't dress like other girls. It's not just something that's sort of subtext. There's a real sense on this record of we know what we're doing and we're going to make commentary on that because as you mentioned hat to the back is literally a song that's being hey we dress in baggy clothes hey that's who we are and in the intro they also feature a guy who's commentating on their clothes and them being like fuck you to the guy yeah i've seen those girls i think they look pretty cool but you know one thing i I mean you know that whole attitude about you know dressed in the baggy clothes it's i don't know i'm I'm not into that i think it's kind of kind of lame you know but Uh, Maybe it's just one of those, you know, those black things. There's a real sense of while they feel very authentic and not like they're pushing it or trying too hard in some ways, there also is a clear idea that they know what they're doing. This is very thought out and there's a lot of intellect and ideas behind this that they're extremely in control of and aware of that becomes very obvious in this music. The other things that I wanted to talk about, I love the way that they, whether they're talking about clothes or they're talking about as on one of the records biggest hits what about your friends right dynamics of female friendship not all of these songs necessarily revolve around men and sex per se mm-hmm. when you think about what about your friends what is that song about and what makes that perspective on female friendship interesting or singular to tlc's particular ethos that's such a great question i think about the way people are always bringing up the bechdel test it's like oh <laughs> a film is progressive if a bunch of women are not mentioning men right and what about your friends is a great counter to that because mm. what instigates the crisis in that song, which is that girls can get sucked into these dynamics that are obviously dictated by the pressure of patriarchy and it causes them to be disloyal or to betray people. That to me is a lot more of an authentic, gritty picture of the way that women interact with each other. And when interacting with each other, especially in the music industry, is such a taboo subject, but there's not a lot of progenitors for that sort of topic. I think that's totally accurate. And I think the song that kept flashing through my mind when I was sort of mulling What About Your Friends over in my head was the Spice Girl song, Wannabe, which kind of presents this extremely sunny version of interfemale friendship and relationship. It's got this really almost nonsensical, but very bright take on 
hey, friends come first, chicks before dicks kind of vibes. Right. And what about your friends is kind of a really interesting and ripe for sort of multi-layered dynamic discussions about the elements and power dynamics in friendships. Because I think one of the things that's part of this song is the idea that they've become successful and how does that affect their friendships feels like a really big part of this song. There's one point where they say, you know, I wouldn't change because I got money or whatever. There's this sense of who are friends that are trying to play on them because they've got successful. How are they going to behave now that they're women with money? That's a really interesting thing for them to take on in the context of a bop and party anthem that doesn't lose its sense of pop sensibility or fun. The other two songs that I felt like we should talk about first is the biggest hit of this record, which is Baby, 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 totally. produced by L.A. Reid and Babyface. Kind of the most traditional girl group nodding song on this record to me. It's a mid-tempo song. It is about men. It's about loving a man and being intimate with man. Kind of sets the table for some of the vibes of Crazy Sexy Cool. The other song that I wanted to bring up is this song, His Story, because another big part of TLC is their approach to activism or their sense of being socially conscious. You brought up safe sex is a huge element in their image and music at this period. Lisa wears a condom over her eye. They are constantly referencing safe sex. This record is happening on the backdrop of the AIDS crisis. In the conclusion of the record, there's literally a screed about using protection very directly. Clearly, that's a big part of their ethos is we like to fuck, and when we like to fuck, we like to make sure that we do it safely. And so there's this song, His Story, that happens on the record that's produced by Austin that is kind of like about the struggle between women and men and how men get believed over women and women don't get listened to in the same way. So a big part of TLC's music is this socially conscious bent that somehow never becomes ponderous or heavy handed. It's a really interesting thing that lives through them and that they're able to make songs that remain very clear in their pop sensibilities that deal with social issues. So those were just two more songs that I just felt like we should talk about. Is there anything that either of them bring up for you or you find interesting in any particular way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to talk about his story, obviously, because it's the first version of Waterfalls in a lot of ways. And when I think of songs about men being believed over women, or I think with his story, it actually has a very explicit shout out to a young Black woman who was assaulted by, I think it was a group of white men in the 80s. Her name was Tawanda Brawley. It's interesting because I think, ironically, now we are in a point where there's a backlash to the woke or socially conscious music. 
when we think of socially conscious music from the 80s and 90s, it hasn't aged particularly well. Yeah. <laughs> There's a sense of corniness. And I think what's really interesting about TLC was how they were always able to avoid that. They were able to sidestep that sense of virtue signaling or politics just for politics sake. There's a sense, even just in the way that the album is constructed, there's a continuity between wanting to be the sort of women who were saying that we are the ones who dictate the sexual scenario to then getting more reflective and saying, here's what happens when the female perspective is not considered. As Left Eye says, this is a story of a male threat to society, being disjudged and not respected for what we are. But then it's really fascinating too, when you think about who is making the song with them, who is, as you say, this silent fourth member, Dallas Austin. Yeah, right. So to have an album where you have that kitty corner to a song like Baby Baby Baby, which as you said, produced by Babyface is a sort of classic plaintive ballad. It just speaks to the really savvy, multidimensional construction. These girls as the avatar of like modern femalehood, Black womanhood in particular, going into Mm -hmm. the new decade. Yeah, that's so well put. Those two songs next to each other feel like they almost summarize everything that you want to know about who this group is. So this record is a pretty big success. They have three top 10 singles, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the lead single, peaks at number six, Baby 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 peaks at number two, What About Your Friends peaks at number seven, the record sells six million copies worldwide. So they're pretty successful from this record. Who do you think are in this early phase TLC's fans? Who's gravitating towards this message and what they're celebrating on this album? That's such a great question. I felt I had a hard time sort of disambiguating who the fans would have been then. I think for a lot of people, Crazy Sexy Cool is actually their entrance. So I think that what happens is TLC obviously gets, when you have the imprimatur of a baby face and LA Reid, you're obviously going to get the vestigial interest of the R&B scene. I also think that it's really critical to mention their tour of that album because you have them opening for MC Hammer, who's the biggest (laughs) cultural phenomenon of the time. And obviously I wasn't able to go to the tour, but when you research what people were saying, people were a little bit more interested in them as an opener. There was some story about MC Hammer's dancers being kind of threatened by them. So I think that they were able to get things of the modern black girl at the time who's maybe feeling a little alienated by the LL Cool J's, by the male rappers, maybe is going to see herself as a de facto R&B fan, but also wants to be on the forefront of this new sound that TLC represents, are obviously going out and buying her albums in droves. But I also think to kind of like go back to the Norman Mailer idea of the white hipster, there are a lot of (laughs) white pop fans that were super interested in this sound, people who saw themselves as being sophisticates because they were early on the hip hop train would also have been drawn to what these girls were doing. We also have to talk about MTV, obviously. Right. One of the ways that we categorize TLC is as a crossover act, and they haven't necessarily fully done that yet at the time, but they are creatures of that space that's being like created at the time. Yeah. One thing that I kept thinking about that you're helping me sort of crystallize in my head is this music felt at once, as I was mentioning, something that played towards kids, but also felt cool enough and respectable 
comfortable enough or had enough of an edge going on that it doesn't feel like Backstreet Boys or Spice Girls or something like that. There's an edge to it and there's a cool factor to it and there's a fearlessness in terms of dealing with sexual stuff on this record and just how the girls present themselves that makes me imagine that people would feel comfortable liking this who weren't necessarily in that very particular what we would know later as the teen pop demo. They feel like they both play to that crowd and yet somehow feel like they can appeal beyond that crowd. And there was a lot of pretty positive critical reception to this album. I was going back and reading some reviews of it. Some were derogatory and misogynistic as a lot of music criticism at this time was, but it wasn't in the same way that you would later see with a Britney or a Christina or a Spice Girls where there was this real sense of dismissiveness. They were taken somewhat seriously. There was a certain amount of respect and admiration that comes from them. I wonder how much of that comes from there's so many instances in which traditional female sexuality or lascivious sexuality is looked down upon by white male critics in this particular moment. So I wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that they were girls that didn't be whores or whatever. <laughs> right. But I thought that that was interesting. The critical reception felt more open to them than it feels like it was to some of their counterparts or people that came right after them that were squarely in the teen pop mold boom that happens just after TLC. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's fascinating too. I think also because they are coming out to sort of bring it back to Mary J. Blige at a time where there is an artist who's considered the lodestone of this burgeoning, basically academic notion of like Black feminism, hip-hop feminism. I think that our culture right now, there's a lot more distance between quote-unquote academic movements and their scrutinizing of popular culture. But that just wasn't as large in the early 90s. And so to have Joan Morgan, who basically wrote the treatise on this idea, doing your vibe cover story in 93 does give the music a kind of theoretical heft that we maybe take for granted. I think that there's a lot more confluence between acts like Salt and Peppa, Queen Latifah, later Will Kim talking about hooks in Paper Magazine. There were these translators, these figures who had the kind of academic background that gets respected by more mainstream white critics who were basically telling them, this is good, this is important. Contemporary Black womanhood is an object for study. So I think they really benefited from this adjacent world where women were doing deep thinking. Right, it's also this classically raucous transposing onto hip-hop culture in a sense of, this music has social awareness and <laughs> thus has value. The fact that they lead with that and they have that be so clearly part of their identity from the beginning, I think maybe provides an entree for people that wouldn't necessarily be into a teen pop group to be like this is interesting what these girls are doing has meaning not to mention that the songs are fucking great <laughs> especially the singles on that first record are absolutely incredible these pummeling totems of new jack swing and hip-hop that are just exploding in your face and they have so much energy and so much fire and so much abouillance as i was sort of mentioning earlier that i think they sound very of their time but they're so incredibly fun to listen to and very distinctive and really memorable, I think, even though obviously they go on to make music that has lived on more broadly and across time in ways that are more deep than these songs. You get why these songs grabbed people by the neck, I guess, when you go back and listen to them. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Duzwiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Pantheon, 
Pantheon positions, and so much more. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel, the guest list at my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and a ton of other great perks. So sign up today at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. So in the interim between ooh on the TLC tip and crazy sexy cool, a couple important things happen. They cut ties with Pebbles, which I only bring up because I think it foreshadows some of the struggles they're going to have financially with the powers that be in their career. And that's going to define a lot of their career moving forward. Mm -hmm. And then I think we should talk about a really important inciting moment in TLC's lore, which is left eye burning down her then boyfriend's house. Can you just explain a little bit broadly like what happens there? Right. So what is really interesting about this love story is how much it really played out in the press. Right. Because Left Eye was not the only famous person in this relationship. Andre Risen playing for the Falcons at the time, again, Atlanta royalty. And they had a very publicly tumultuous relationship. Right. Before the incident at the house, Andre Risen was abusive. And not to diminish the abuse that Left Eye endured by him, but she also was abusive towards him. And an alcoholic at the time. There's this one interview where she talks about her relationship to her father. She says, my father gave me my first drink and my hundredth drink. Oh, wow. And it took her many years to sort of wrestle with the fact that she was an alcoholic. I think she saw it as being a part of this storm that she needs to be creative. A classic. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So they are this very publicly explosive couple. Left Eye felt really publicly disrespected by Andre Ryzen because she would often go out until really late in the morning, entertain other women, this sort of thing. And the behind the music, which I feel like it's the behind the music documentary from the VH1 series that's the most seared in my brain. It's interesting right. to hear Left Eye tell the story of that night, which is that she comes home, he's not home. She sees that he's ordered many dozens of pairs of shoes and there are none that are his sides. It's the perfect picture of his inability to think of her as a partner, as an equal. Mm. So mm. she puts a pair of shoes in the tub and she lights it on fire, not thinking much of it. I think the tub was made of... As one does. Yes. <laughs> it's like 6 a.m. in the morning. The tub is made of some flammable material. The entire, entire house burns down. Yeah. And so what is immediately put on left eye in the public narrative is that she's like the crazy bitch. It doesn't matter what a man did to you. It's never reasonable to burn his house down. And what gets lost is that in their relationship, first of all, he was a lot older than she was. He's still in her early 20s at this time. And secondly, he had been physically abusive to her in the past. And so as a way of sort of cleaning up this story, which when you think about Black people being publicly bad during that time period, I feel like her and OJ were almost put on the same precipice, which speaks uh, to how relentless and unfair the media was at the time. Now we look at the details of the story and it becomes extremely clear what happened. So this event affects TLC, obviously, because it becomes part of their story. They're no longer these just cool girls. They're crazy bitches or whatever. Right. Well, it's almost like all of the freewheeling, fun, babooliant nature that we loved about them on the first record, all of a sudden, those same traits become objects of ire or sort of creates the notion around them that they're this chaotic mess, essentially. Right. And maybe a sort of fear on whether they will be able to maintain their success on the precipice of this second album, which obviously had so much writing on it. And 
And then because Left Eye's legal team maneuver a situation to sort of avoid going to prison, she goes to rehab. Mm -hmm. In rehab, she can't be recording a lot of the music that she needs to be recording for the album. Obviously, she is on Crazy Sexy Cool, but there was just a lot of stuff that she can do because she had to be there. She had to get special dispensation to be able to go to the studio. So yeah, I think there's a way in which that terrible incident involving the house Obviously, people remember it as being like kind of funny, being representative of the extreme passion of this person who I will agree with you that there is no Beyonce of the group, but there is someone who people are so much more interested in than the others in terms of her mind, her genius. Mm. I think Left Eye, as the years go on, she emerges as the writer, the visionary, the mind. Yeah. And also the agitator and the person that's willing to hit the self-destruct button on the group, kind of holding that over their head for a lot of their career from this point on, basically. Right. The person who dissipates the image that had been so imperfectly tailored for the first album. She's the person who gets us thinking about the influence of the male producers, who gets us thinking about autonomy. And so she becomes, I would say, more of the locus, at least in terms of conversation. Yes. Whereas actually musically, I think Chili becomes the muse of the voice of Crazy Sexy Cool. Right. And on the first record, they come across as a unified force in some ways. Yes, Lisa's rapping and the other girls are singing more, but there's a sense of similar vibe and energy coming through as a unified group. Whereas this begins the era where T-Boz and Chili represent the sultry soul elements of the group and Left Eye provides this chaotic fire. And it's that contrast that I think animates a lot of the great music that comes on the next couple of records. They start to occupy these two roles that make the songs really interesting, but also I think create a lot of intragroup tension that ends up bubbling over in all of these interesting ways. But yes, as you were saying, Lisa is a big driving force in the group's meta-narrative that's surrounding all of this music. Interestingly enough, as you said, she's not as involved in the creation of this second record, but they essentially make a gigantic sonic and aesthetic pivot on this next record that comes out in 1994, which begins with their lead single, Creep. Talk to me about Creep and how this song reintroduces who TLC is, kind of in a pretty radical way, in my estimation. Right, the 22nd of loneliness. Wait, question before we get into this. Is this a diary entry? The 22nd of loneliness, the 23rd of loneliness. Is this song constructed as a diary entry? That was the first thing that came into my head. I've listened to this song maybe 7,000 times in my life and this was the first time I thought of that idea. I've always thought it that way. Yeah. You almost want to hear the Moesha theme music playing. Chivas. <laughs> <laughs> incredibly complicated, exciting pivot for these girls to make. Obviously, the sexual authority of their debut is really exciting, but it's also somewhat one-dimensional in comparison to a song like Creep. Mm. Actually, one of the reasons why I find it really fascinating is because it's a T-Boz song. It's her perspective. And she's just talking about the sometimes space that women are in where you are not getting attention from a man. You're lonely. You're marking the days on your calendar via that loneliness. And so you need to find an outlet for that. And so creep is basically a euphemism for cheating. Mm -hmm. 
And in the music video, they're wearing those really silky, luxurious pajamas. And I think that why that song is so important in music history is that we have so many, many, many songs that are about cheating, that are about betrayal, that are about guilt, but they're not told from the female perspective. The woman is never the cheater in the relationship. Mm. So I think that's why it was such a shocking turn for them to make because it sort of reconstituted that sexual braggadocio into a place of guilt or paranoia or confessionalism that you don't see on the first album at all. There's no real confessional songs on that. Left Eye had a problem with that song. Right. Because it would have conveyed (laughs) a message regarding her relationship with Andre, who she's still dating at the time, that she didn't want to get out there. And so in the music video, she has that piece of tape over her mouth because she didn't agree with the story behind it. And they cut a verse of hers in which she was supposedly addressing her perspective on why she thought the get back at him by cheating message was not something she vibed with. This song is so fucking amazing on so many levels. A, it is just the groove sleekest, sexiest, sultriest, boom bap meets jazz, meets R&B, meets soul music. I mean, it is just absolutely like rapturous to listen to the groove of this thing. Production-wise, Dallas Austin, just an emblem of this particular period of R&B and hip-hop coming together, right? Such an incredible chorus. T-Boz's growl on that song is just at its absolute apex. But I actually was thinking this time, it's a sad song. It's a song that I think reveals a lot of pathos and tragedy in inter-hetero-patriarchal dynamics between men and women in relationship, I get a sense that this woman feels she has no other recourse, in a sense, but to hit back. She doesn't have the strength or the power or desire, maybe, even to leave the cheating guy. It's not something that she either wants or feels that she can do. And so she feels like her only way to get back onto even footing is to do something equally transgressive to the guy. And then the fascinating twist on the whole thing to me in thinking about this is the lyric if he knew the things i did he couldn't handle it so i choose to keep him protected there's this sense that she's able to handle or it's fine for her to know that this guy's cheating but she's going to do it for her own sense of self-empowerment to get back at him, but never let him know. It's all in a way to gain power back in this dynamic for her. I don't know if you watched the most recent White Lotus season, but there's this character on there that literally talks about the ethos of creep. She knows her husband's cheating, and she basically goes, the way that I deal with that is to cheat back at him, and I never tell him. It's not about me telling him. It's about what makes me feel made whole or makes me feel like I have my power back. I'm back on that even footing. And that's what this song is about, which is both a really fascinating and sticky way to address this topic, but also something sad about that, that that's her only recourse is to quietly do the same poisonous thing back to this guy. There's something heartbreaking in a way about that, but also very real, I guess. Extremely real. There's an exposure in that song because obviously this is something that women have realized in the heterosexual contract for many, many, many centuries. And I think what is so interesting about the ethos is that ultimately it's still in favor of maintaining the romance. 100%. That is the whole point. She's cheating to stay in the relationship. She's doing it so that she can feel she can stay, basically. Exactly. And so the cheater's anthem, the arc of it should end in leaving the relationship, but there's a vulnerability to admitting that the relationship 
is a source of shelter. It's a source of reasoning. It's a source of rationality. And so you have to do something irrational to maintain it. Yes. So what about the rest of this record? What is going on here? This song obviously reintroduces this group as way more toned down, sleek, sultry, laid back, soul music. This is dealing with a lot more complex emotions related to romance, sex, male and female relationships that we sort of meet on Creep. How does that sort of set the table for what the rest of Crazy Sexy Cool is like? like how would you describe the sort of overarching sounds and aesthetics of this record? Yeah, so I think if we're going to oversimplify and sort of look at the debut as essentially being a hip-hop album. This is the album that's the R&B, sexy, laconic. If Vanity Six had had a successful album, it would have sounded like this. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite princely in many ways, I think, too. Yeah, and there's a Prince cover on it, which I think is so interesting. If I Was Your Girlfriend. Obviously, the predominant voice in this album shifts much more towards the baby face aesthetic. Right. What I find so interesting about Dallas Austin is that his imprint is no imprint because he can shift so easily from genre to genre. I guess mm. what his sound is synonymous with is what we think of like golden era TLC. Whereas when you hear Babyface, you're like, that's him. Or you hear the Jermaine Dupri, you're like, that's him. A hundred percent. And some of their best material ever. I mean, Digging On You, which is, I think, maybe the third single on this record, which is just the most sexiest, sultriest, sunniest slice of R&B, sexy, puppy love. The groove on that song, Digging On You, is, I have tingles on my spine just talking about (laughs) what an incredible slice of pop R&B history. I just love that song. That warm, shuffling beat, it just is a spring day in sonic form. I think this is just one of the greatest R&B songs in history, bar none. And I love the horns on this album. Yes. They're not doing what horns typically do in New Jack Swing. They're more subdued. Generally, tempo, we are slowed so much more down from the debut. And then also, I'm not going to say problematically, but interestingly, rap is not featured as much, which means to say that it's a little harder for us to locate the Lisa Left Eye Lopez of it all. Right. Which could be by necessity, essentially, because of her lack of presence in the studio. Right, exactly. But then it creates this interesting, different kind of alchemy between Chili and T-Boz to kind of put Lisa aside for a second. I think that their dynamic is really, really unique and weird precisely because there's no voice like T-Boz that growl, that sense of almost atonality, which is really fascinating. being leavened by Chili, who her vocals are so much stronger on this album than they are yes. in the debut. And I love them as being kind of yin and yang of female desire at this time, mid-90s seeing them as counters to the belters of the era. Right. And that sort of creates 
or increases its sense of erotic malaise. Erotic malaise. That is <laughs> such a good way to describe it. That is the permeating feeling of this entire thing. This album, this sound just permeates you. It slows yes. you down. If you're dancing to it, it's so much more of like you're dancing against the wall. Extremely <laughs> sexy. Not so much a message album, although obviously we have arguably the most famous message song of TLC's career on it. But the album itself, that song is almost kind of like an outlier. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about my fucking nine-year-old self listening to Red Light Special. It's fascinating because some of the politics and the sort of pop feminism or hip hop feminism of the first record does come into a song like Red Light Special where it's like, yes, they're sort of owning themselves more as lascivious creatures who desire sex in more of a traditional sort of purring way than the sort of aggro tomboyish pose they strike on the first record or whatever. But there's so many great lyrics on Red Light Special that just make me smile so hard because it's still this feeling of we're the people that know what's right and are sort of dictating the rules of this sexual interaction, even as we embody a more traditional female sound or guys or purr on these songs. I love the lyric, if I move too fast, just let me know, cause it means you move too slow. She's literally asking this guy to speak about what his desire should be in the sexual dynamic and then basically turning around and being like, well, they're wrong. Cause actually <laughs> I know how this is supposed to go better than you ever could. That's hip hop, that aggression. And I think that's what makes this album so interesting. The modes have been completely melted into each other to the point that they can't be disentangled. Yes. And I think that there's also a really interesting key sense of they're wise, but not condescending. There's this sense of they're one of the people, but yet they dispense homespun wisdom about sex and gender dynamics in this way that never feels like they're sort of talking down at you or trying to point their finger in your face. But they do have this sense of we get how things work and we're very self-possessed and confident in what we know about the world. That's a perspective that I feel like lays beneath the surface of a lot of these songs. Of course, no clearer than on their signature hit from this record, and I think probably of their career, which as you were mentioning, is the song Waterfalls, which is produced by Organized Noise, one of the most fascinating productions in the R&B of this period. Just this almost neo-soul, but slinky, kind of funky the baseline is just one of the most memorable of the period. And it's a song that takes on both gang violence and indoctrinating young black men into gang violence. And then also talks about HIV, one of their primary concerns on the first record. Talk to me about Waterfalls and why this song is such a standout both for this group and of this time period. What makes this song so incredibly enduring and special, do you think? I like to start just with the production itself. I always think of Waterfalls and Unpretty as being twins because of that introduction of guitar, which is not something that we're really associating with TLC yet. And that kind of folky bopping on the porch sound is, I think, what enables the really, really intense aspect of the lyrics, which is to say they're being sung with the exception of Left Eye's verse, yes. but they have the sense of narrative propulsion that rap has. Yes, or even a country song in some ways, I thought. Oh, uh, that's an amazing, I think that's actually even more apt. Mm -hmm. 
And so you have this incredibly infectious chorus that allows people to accept this song when I think that the verses are extremely difficult. Nobody sings the verses to this song. When it came out, that's not what it was really known for. It was almost like, yeah, these guys are talking about AIDS and they're basically reproducing the plot of like a hood movie. You know, it's like boys in the hood, but in a song. Or if you did sing the verses, the thing that's so brilliant, I think, about the lyrics of both Creep and this song is if you think about it for a second, you're like, whoa. But you could also just experience this as just the groove and the catchiness of the melody and the hook and not even know what you're saying in a sense. That's why these songs are so elegant because they're able to almost Trojan horse these deeper ideas into something that you can either engage with on an intellectual level or completely turn your brain off and appreciate them in different ways, I guess. Absolutely. It's like a choose your own adventure kind of experience. And it's paired with this music video, which is one of the obviously most famous, but also one of the most expensive music videos to come out during the time and really solidifies that when we're thinking of music video artists of the 90s, we're thinking about Janet Jackson pretty much in the same space that we're thinking of TLC. Like that music video, them doing that synchronized bop underneath the waterfall, the CGI, the pastiche of the various stories from the two verses, I think kind of like sets them up as if they were cultural commentators before now, they're like cultural critics. Mm. And it gives them an importance that seems to range outside of music. Like here, that song really, really concretizes the idea that when we are talking about kitchen politics, when we are talking about street girl feminism, we can't talk about it without TLC. They really situate themselves as arbiters of the morals of the Black space in that time, which is an odd thing for them to do on an album like Crazy Sexy Cool. And to be able to elegantly take on these sort of issues, I was thinking about the Supreme song Love Child and how radical it was to listen to a figure like Diana Ross pivot out of talking about issues of romantic love and pining and all of the sort of traditional girl group tropes that she and the Supremes dealt with on a lot of their early hits and then the pivot into making these socially conscious songs. And I was thinking about Waterfalls in the legacy of a song like Love Child, which was about being born out of wedlock and how that affects a young Black child's life. And at the same time, the dynamism of this song is represented to me so clearly in the music video itself, which I'm so glad that you brought up, and in the shift in their sort of visual aesthetic presentation, because you still have the sort of vibe of the tomboy, but yet you have this really delicate walk where they live into a sexier vibe. They're all in the crop tops or the sports bra looks with the baggy pants. Another artist that was on my mind a lot, and you brought this up earlier, was Aaliyah and One in a Million. And this, there's a real playing with masculinity and femininity that I think is inherent to the women of hip-hop and R&B in this particular space that they represent both in terms of how they approach this record and how they sing, T-Boz's low register that she sings in, and then also in terms of the visuals. They do a really effective job of playing with almost a fusion of masculine and feminine. And I just remember putting on my baggy pants on vacation and going to stand in the ocean and me and my sister. Oh my God. 
there's a video somewhere that my dad has on our camcorder of us trying to recreate the Waterfalls music video. We need to see that. Can you just remember coming home that was on TV? There was nothing bigger. It was on TV on MTV all the time. It was also on BET all the time. I always think of T-Boz's little ad-libs like, y'all don't hear me. Into the verb tense of the chorus, which is being narrated from a space of sadness and wanting better from the community. But mm. it's odd because we don't really think of TLC at that time as being the elders, being the women who are coming in and wanting better for the next generation. And so there's this sense of almost elder woman black drag that you feel. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's the socially conscious ballad, but there is an element of, I don't want to say inauthenticity because that's not true, especially not when you consider Lisa's verse, which is so personal to what was going on. I mean, that register is so impossible for anyone to recreate, even though Doja Cat has tried to, Nicki Minaj has tried to. Missy. Yeah, it's just one of her own. I always find that song really disconcerting is too strong of a word, but there is something about it that feels slightly incongruous with TLC, which is, of course, what makes it the ultimate TLC song. <laughs> mm. But just the sense, the wisdom, as you mentioned earlier, it felt like it was necessitated by the crises of the age. The Reagan era, we're talking about the crack epidemic, we're talking about the AIDS epidemic, sexual violence against women. It was necessitated by that. And it kind of made this trio occupy a space that they basically never really occupy again. Mm, that was so present to me in listening to the music this time is how responsive this group is to their environment. This group is defined by the political winds of this moment. TLC is a group that is against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis in such an obvious way from the beginning to this moment and of course everything else that you were talking about. They're fascinating as political entities in a weird way and yet never in a way that feels Preach. exactly. Elegant is the word that I keep thinking of to myself and the way that this all came together. And as I said, there's not enough I can say about this record. I wish we could talk about every single song. If anybody has not spent time listening to this album, it is truly one of pop's masterpieces to me personally. It is one of the most pleasurable listens in pop history, I think. Truly a sensuous experience. So, of course, it's also one of the most successful albums of all time. It is the biggest selling album by a girl group in history. It sells 14 million copies. Creep and Waterfalls both go number one. Red Light Special goes goes number two, Digging On You goes number five. You don't get a bigger album than this. TLC is the biggest thing on the planet. For anyone that did not live through this, TLC was it. They were it. It was everything. Everywhere. And yet, behind the scenes, <laughs> things are not so rosy. Can you just lay out what happens here that ends up with them filing for bankruptcy one year after having the biggest record on earth and what sets them on a trajectory that puts them on a five-year hiatus from releasing music after having this massive success? Right. When I think about this story, I feel such guilt and embarrassment, even though obviously I was a child, but I think we didn't know to scrutinize why these girls were broke. Yeah. 
I think that TLC occupied this paradoxical space where they were the most successful girl group in the history of girl groups, possibly one of the most successful artists alive at the time. And we're talking about like Michael Jackson and stuff as their peers. Yes. They're absolutely in that conversation. And yet at the same time, they became jokes in a way because when the news came out that they didn't have any money, which is how, of course, the media reported their strife with their record company, everyone was just like, okay, look, Black women, of course, not knowing how to do business, not being responsible or whatever. That was sort of, I think, the narrative that got attached to them. But essentially, having been signed to Pebble Tone, Pebbles is no longer married to L.A. Reid at this time, I think. She's not their manager any longer, but they're still like in this terrible contract. And they're with, I think, Lisa, again, to reference this behind the music episode, she talks about it so well. You signed a contract, which most people have a notional understanding of the fact that when artists are new, they sign bad contracts, but usually there's an opportunity to have that contract updated. That happened to to men, for example. But this doesn't happen with TLC. Mm-hmm. They are selling 14 million records, but they're getting pennies on the dollar for each album. I think it's like 56 cents or something is allocated to the artist. And then right. because of the terms of their contract, they have to pay for all of the promotion. They have to pay for the touring. They have to pay for everything. And so essentially each member was walking away with something like $50,000 a year, which is not a livable salary for artists who have to match up with an album that has gone diamond. Yeah. And so they make the decision with their lawyers to file for chapter 11 bankruptcy. All right. This is how a group can sell 10 million records and be broke. And everyone, get ready to do your math. When we first started out, we were kind of cocky. Okay, there are 100 points on the album. TLC had seven. Every point is equal to eight cents. All right? Seven times eight, 56 cents. But as time went on, we learned a lot. That means every time an album gets sold, TLC gets 56 cents. So 10 million records. $5.6 million. Seems like a lot of money. Well, it's not a lot of money when the record company has spent $3 million to record your album. And in the record business, we pay all costs back to the record company. We pay recording costs, video costs. So now we have $2.6 million left. Well, guess what? When you have that much money, you're in about the 47, 48.49% tax bracket. So that immediately gets deducted to $1.3 million. Then you split the rest three ways. You got about $300,000 a piece. Is that much? Okay? $300,000. I can buy a nice house with that. And what am I going to pay my bills with? And that causes this inability for the public to understand how the music industry works. How can people allow themselves to be signed into these contracts where you are basically receiving no capital, all of these other figures who Pebbles didn't even do any work on that album. She had that contract existed, would have gotten money in perpetuity, I think, or for the next eight albums that they would have created. And so if Left Eye's altercation with Andre was the first tabloid story that made us more interested in the inner workings of their personal lives. This was the one that really clinched the inability to sort of square the success of this girl group with the reality of their material conditions. Right. And it seems like it also catalyzes enough intra-group tension between Left Eye and the other two in particular that causes them to disappear from music for such a long time. I mean, they basically go from having the 
biggest album on earth and basically defining the sound of the mid 90s and being the emblematic pop act of that time period to essentially not existing as a group for like four years almost they all go on to attempt solo things they basically are on hiatus because of this bankruptcy and because of whatever was going on behind the scenes intertension wise between the group while pop and r&b and hip-hop shift seismically from the mid 90s to the late 90s and enter the computer age you have pharrell you have timberland you have dark child coming in and radically shifting the soft boom bap earth tones of crazy sexy cool of dallas austin and all of those producers and take it into this stuttering electronic space and meanwhile tlc goes from being kind of like at the forefront or the vanguard of the sound of hip-hop pop and r&b to kind of being not forgotten i guess but sort of superseded by this new generation of r&b futurists like missy elliott brandy there's all of these artists that have come in and taken that space up and so by the time you get to 1999's fan mail which in and of itself, I mean, I don't know if what your understanding of it was, but it seems like it was a bit of a labored process because of the fact that Lisa was kind of one foot in, one foot out during the making of this record, as far as I understand it. Yeah, that's the same sense that I have. Lisa is also really successful as a producer. I don't know if you remember the girl group Black. Oh, yeah. They were assigned to Lisa's production company. And it's funny because Lisa did have it in her to be like a very traditional, almost Pebbles-like figure. Yeah. Without obviously taking advantage of these girls, but pretty sure that Black's debut did quite well. So Lisa is going on a spiritual journey. She's becoming much more invested in understanding how this industry works on a business level. Mm-hmm. And so obviously all the girls are upset, but Lisa is the one who's going to the media. And she's the one who's during the hiatus writing to <laughs> T-Boz and Chili and challenging them to make the solo album or whatever. In these ways that are obviously extremely idealistic, she wants to become a artist with a capital A. You can tell there's resentment on her part for how they were put into this prefab structure. And she wants to break free of that. But I think the problem with Lisa's aspirations is that that prefab structure had within it the space for radicalizing, which you actually Mm. see with in their almost uncanny ability to slip into that futuristic R&B realm. It's amazing because if you didn't know that they like didn't make music for five years and then you see no scrubs, you're like, you're doing it as seamlessly as Analia is doing it. You have the choreography down, you have the aesthetics down, the sound is down. Yeah, it's really fascinating too because I think Lisa also, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, seems to be wanting to demand credit for her as the creative engine behind a lot of these things. Like I was reading a lot of quotes from her where she was essentially saying a lot of the concepts for our songs, for our albums, for our looks, these were my ideas. And she was also sort of in that challenge that she issued to the group and this should be said before this record comes out Lisa is in the press being like I don't stand behind the music that's about to come out from this group and she as Doreen was referencing earlier she publicly issues this challenge to the other two where she's like we should release a triple album <laughs> each with solo projects from the three of us and let's see who's does the best i.e. saying if you guys didn't have me you wouldn't be able to be successful I mean she's essentially kind of exposing in this pretty messy public way but in a way that's really interesting for history's sake a pretty tense humming in the back of this group that seemed like this girl gang that when you initially met them 
you just wanted to be part of their ebullient friendship. And really, in contrast to that, there seems like there was quite a lot of almost disdain amongst the three of them between T-Boz and Chili on one side and Left Eye on the other side. There was really, it seemed like, an immense amount of tension. And Left Eye obviously seemed like she felt really of two minds about being in the group to begin with. I mean, you think about her tension with the ideas of creep in general being probably a moment of dissonance for the group. But this record, Left Eye, both seems like she wants to be credited as the person that comes up with the ideas for this. Like she talks about how the idea of making a record called Fan Mail, a record that was celebrating the fact that fans had to wait five years to receive this music from them, was her idea. And at the same time, she seems like she wants to keep this music at arm's length. Like she has a really dynamic relationship to being a member of TLC and is the one that seems like she has the clearest solo aspirations of the group. She's the one that seems to be constantly gesturing at the fact that like, no, I don't want to spend time making another TLC album. Like I want to be making my own music. But in the midst of all of that chaos, obviously they dropped this lead single, No Scrubs, which is their most successful song ever. Maybe the song that endures the most of any of their singles. What's happening on this song? How does this song present TLC to us in an updated guise for the late 90s, I guess, at this moment? Right. So that's a song that has the sense of coming from experience in a way that you don't get as much with the first album, definitely. And even with Crazy Sexy Cool, I think if there's one thing to describe TLC's music is that it's always anthemic, right? Even a song about AIDS is a song about gang violence. There is this really outward facing empowerment rhythm to that song and to others that sort of like pepper their albums. And similarly, it does have that kind of academic definition feel where it's like, I didn't want this kind of guy. Who is this kind of guy? <laughs> he's this kind of guy. He's hanging out the passenger side of his best friend's ride. He's trying, trying to, holler. to holler at you. That song is really interesting because it's not unique. We think about certain songs that aren't Destiny's Child's albums, for example. There is the song sort of calling out the no good guy. A bugaboo and a scrub are in the same tent together, essentially. They're part of the same species. But what I think makes no scrubs so much more sticky in that way mm-hmm. is the production, which some people will criticize as overly trying to do the Timbaland thing, but at the same time does fit into the futuristic sound of the album as a whole. I think the one song on fan mail that feels like it's not a part of that is probably unpretty. The guitar forward song, but No Scrubs just has that really simplistic but elegant writing to it that makes it impossible to not remember the lyrics and also trades on at this point nearly a decade of feminism bona fides that the group has.
It's the ultimate R&B kiss off girly song. I mean, it's really like that song that you want to turn to when you're just like, men are shit. This song is that. And I think we should also mention writing courtesy of another important member of TLC's Candy Burris and Tamika Cottle, who are members of Escape, a group that Jermaine founded. So there's a lot of DNA of girl group history here. I think No Scrubs and Unpretty actually represent the dynamics of this record, which seems like it's both responding to the updated futuristic computerized electronic sound of hip hop, R&B, and pop at this particular moment, and then also dealing in like Lilith Fair aesthetics or something like that. I mean, Unpretty to Me, which is the other number one song from this record, feels almost like a folk hippie sort of Lilith Fair song to me in some way. <laughs> I remember feeling like unpretty was too corny for me. It was the first time <laughs> that I heard a TLC song. I'm probably 12, 13 at this point. Crazy Sexy Cool was my life and No Scrubs was everything. I mean, the video for No Scrubs where they're in the Hype Williams spaceship and they've got the blinking lights on their boobs. Just iconic. And Lisa doing her rap with the camera circling around her. Oh, God, I just love that video so much. But Unpretty to me, I remember feeling like, oh, this is too adult contemporary corny to me. And that's what's kind of funny about, I think, this record in general to me as I was listening back to it. Their incredible ability to inhabit these new spaces in hip-hop and R&B like I fucking love the title track to this album the song fan mail is so moving it's about disconnection in the internet era it's about the loneliness that technology has fostered it reminds me a little bit of the Janet Jackson song empty which came out two years before it which also deals with disconnection of online and relationships and online dating and things like that in this soundscape of fluttering stuttering electronic beats I think they work so well in that format because the warmth of their low register voices and the soul that they sort of bring to these songs really contrasts beautifully with that bloopy bloopy stuttery kind of sound. <laughs> But there's adult contemporary gestures on some of these songs that represent Babyface's worst instincts, that represent some of the things that I kind of feel like this record is a little bit all over the place for me as an Entoto artistic statement. One thing I just wanted to add about fan mail is I was rereading Juliet Escobedo Shepard, Our Mutual Friends, retrospective review of this from Complex in 2014. It is apparently the second song in pop history to mention email. Is the first Britney Spears email on my heart yes one month earlier <laughs> wow okay the britney spears tlc and alternative universe are basically the same artists <laughs> yes and then the other thing is this record is famous for the songs that they turned down mm. one of which was baby one more time which was pitched to them by max martin for this album and heartbreak hotel was also pitched to them for this record and they turned it down as was 702's where my girl's at were all songs that were written for this album and pitched them and they, they turned down but yeah that's kind of my take on this record is obviously no Scrubs is an all-timer. There's some really interesting experiments with R&B futurism, like I'm Good at Being Bad, Silly Ho, another great Timberland rip. And then you've got the back half that are a lot of these adult contemporary Lilith Fair gestures. Yeah, Diane Warren. Yeah, Diane Warren's here. Once Diane Warren's here, I'm a little bit out. I gotta say, like... <laughs> Come on down, put the water. 
So fan mail, super successful yet again. I think almost in a surprising sense, they've been gone for so long. I think the success of No Scrubs Out the Gate was almost like, whoa, like they proved their prowess after a really long hiatus, after they had been pegged as this sort of group of chaos. They're always able to come together and bring that alchemy and chemistry together into something magical when the three of them get in the same room and get on the same page. The record sells extremely well. It's got two number one singles in Unpretty and No Scrubs. And then things unravel essentially for the group after that, I mean, how would you characterize what happens between 2000 and then Left Eye's untimely death in 2002? Because of the tension between Left Eye and the rest of the group, does it kind of seem like the writing's on the wall? I guess no pun intended, given that that record also comes out right after this, that this group is not long for this world. I mean, that's my sense that I have is that Left Eye is essentially done with them, more or less. Even though they get her back in the studio to start this next album, it doesn't feel that she's totally involved or wants to be part of this anymore. Absolutely. So now we're like turn of the century and that's such a strange place to be in because we know at least culturally, musically, financially, they could be viable for forever. Right. But loss of the chemistry, as you said, to quote, the title of another girl group's album puts the writing on the wall. <laughs> and also what I love about this time in music is just how forthcoming and open music media was. And it was like extremely important. So we actually have like a really good sense of what they were thinking at the time. Even just Dallas Austin being like, I don't really know that this is going to survive. And also is the girl group model even really continuing to be viable at the turn of the century in general? Right. I mean, obviously there's still hugely successful acts like Destiny's Child and Spice Girls, but with the dawning of a Christina Aguilera, who I think opened for one of TLC tours, Britney Spears, we are shifting to the singular girl, that act. And so there are a lot of factors that I think that are even outside of the acrimony within the group that sort of make it seem like it would be their destiny to not have had this fourth album that comes out. Yes. I kind of think if Left Eye hadn't died in the way that she had so tragically that there wouldn't have been 3D. That feels right to me. I mean, the truth is Left Eye goes out, releases like a very unsuccessful solo album called Supernova that comes out right after this. And then, as you said, she's on this deep spiritual journey. She's in Honduras. She's filming a documentary on herself and this documentary does eventually come out on VH1 and it's a harrowing watch. It's very interesting but she was clearly on her own tip at this moment and she actually filmed her own death which is truly one of the spookiest things I've ever seen on tape but yeah, she tragically dies. It interestingly happens very soon after Aaliyah's death. These things happen in tandem. It's a really sad kind of one-two and the other thing I was going to say to you is I just think girl groups and boy bands, they're always kind of short-lived. I mean the fact that TLC was able to stretch this out over eight years is in and of itself impressive. It's very hard to get three artists who start as young people and then grow into adults and have differing interests and differing desires and all these things to like continue to operate as one. It seems to me, just looking at the course of pop history, there isn't a long shelf life for girl groups, for boy bands. There seems to be an expiration date. And I completely agree with your take that this record almost feels like it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Lisa's death in a way. And I listened to it, honestly, for the first time getting prepared for this. It's actually not bad. I actually thought it was going to be way worse. There's a cute single called Girl Talk, which is the lead single. How do you pay tribute to a person who was obviously integral to the genesis of the group and its continuance, but also where there was obviously huge 
tension. Right. Well, it felt like they were able to display love for her in absentia easier than when she was an agitator to them in life or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The girls are talking. The girls are talking. Girls talk about the booty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like an ode to female gossip. But what's fascinating to me about it, and I think where we can wrap this conversation up, and I think ties us back to the beginning of it, which is that once the third member isn't there, the alchemy's gone. We're only two and a half years after the massive success of fan mail, and yet this record totally flops, doesn't make an impact. After having three of the most iconic records of the preceding 10 years, all of a sudden the interest is just gone. And to me, there are girl groups that have sustained through member changes and lineup changes and whatever. And this particular group just cannot do that. This is not Destiny's Child where it's like, yeah, let's swap out some people. Once Left Eye's not there, it's not there. There's nothing there. Even though the songs are good and we love the other two, I just think it's poetic in a sense that without Left Eye, it just proves how much this group was something that was bigger than the sum of its parts at the end of the day. And her left eye without T-Boz and Chili, she couldn't do it either. Exactly. That wasn't where their magic was. Right. None of them had successful solo careers. I find that so interesting for three of the most iconic women of that generation of musicians. None of them were able to really have success as solo artists. I find that really interesting. And TLC wasn't able to sustain without one of the legs holding the whole thing together. So, of course, they also crowdsourced and released a fifth album in 2015. (laughs) We don't have to talk about that. There was the reality show. They tried to recast Lisa. Uh, unsuccessfully that was really weird I think like they were talking about little mama joining the group for a while which would have been (laughs) crazy what do you think is TLC's legacy in pop in girl group history in the music and girl groups that have come after them how do we see their impact on the space us recording this episode in the era where SZA rules the world. They are one of those groups who, for as large as they might have been during their heyday, their influence is much larger and harder to loud because it's so amorphous. I mean, I think of the title of Kehlani's album, Sweet Sexy Savage, literally matched to Crazy Sexy Cool. I think that there is always going to be a woman figure in pop who is a little off a little weird and they are always going to link themselves back to TLC. You know, if Mm. you want to do something really intellectually specious and sort of use Destiny's Child as the yin to their yang, it's like you have the professionals who go through the extremely intense boot camp kind of vision of what it is to be a pop star. And then you have the ineffable. You have the people who have this quality, this grain that cannot be quantified that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to music unassailable, but to traditional categories of what's the singing like? What's the choreography like? It's not necessarily going to be measured in that way, but when it comes to, I can't believe I'm using this word, exemplifying a vibe, which I is in some ways a lot more difficult to do. TLC is who we sort of look to for that. So TLC, when we want to think about Rihanna, we got to think about, we want to think about Doja Cat in a lot of ways. SZA, hugely, I see her lyricism as very much being attached to the elegance, the rawness of a TLC crazy, sexy, cool sort of a song. So yeah, I think there's the R&B to pop crossover music. They are completely essential, but what I find so much more interesting is their legacy and the history of cool, of Black cool. That is, I think, where they are the most important. All 
All right, so last topic of conversation, oh, the Pot Pantheon. <laughs> okay, the new thing with everybody on the show is I get to this and everyone freaks out. That's the new thing. For some reason, the last five episodes in a row we've taped, I'm like, let's talk about the Pot Pantheon and every single person is like, ah, no, don't want to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's the name of the show and we got to talk about it. I know, I know. I want to let you off the hook here because this is not a reflection of how much we love them, what they mean to us, how amazing their music was. This is cold, hard facts about how culture in 2023 interfaces with this group. How are they remembered? How are they held? What is their position in the firmament of pop history? How do we see them? Do you have a sense of what tier you would place them in in that context? This is not about your feelings. This has no feelings. This is dead inside. This is just pure, hard facts. I can go first if you really want me to. I want you to go first. <laughs> I could tell you're just like, literally, please don't make me do this. <laughs> because I don't think that my tear reflects my feelings for them. Yeah, mine neither. Listen, <laughs> if my tears reflected my feelings for them, Robin would be in tier one. But that's just right. not the world that we live in. You know what I'm saying? Right. right, right. right. <laughs> All right. My feeling is that they're probably tier three, but cuspy to tier two is how I see them. If you think about tier three, A in particular, you're thinking about one to three albums over at least half a decade that spawned numerous hit singles. We have three clear albums, and I'd say we have five to 10 genuine hit songs. Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Baby, 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 What About Your Friends, Waterfalls, Digging On You, Creep, Red Light Special, No Scrubs, Unpretty. That's nine hit songs. You've got one album that had a major impact with many hit songs. I'd say they've had more than one of those. I think all three of those albums could qualify for that category. Defender helps define a very specific moment, era, or year. I would say that they do have that numerous times, actually. I think what's interesting is each of these albums really has their own identity and has its own kind of reinvention to it, which I think is really interesting. Beefy Arsenal of hits they can sell tour on. Yes, T-Boz and Chili are still out there doing that tour. Continue to make critically regarded work. Well, no still resonates and sells well. I don't think that crowdsourced album did particularly well, but I think it would be a different story if Lisa was still alive. I think that if they were releasing music, then Lisa was still part of that could be different. Could launch a Vegas residency? 100% could see that. So I see them as tier three. And then in tier two, it's hard because they really do have eight years of sustained success. I'm going to say they're top of tier three, cuspy tier two. That's where I see them. I like where you're going. And I will be controversial to say that there are also elements of who they are now, which we're purposefully ignoring because it's so painful. Yeah. That could have them sort of cast in tier four. Like what? I don't know how seriously TLC is taken outside of the space of nostalgia. Oh, interesting. That was the criteria that made me so confused. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, I was like, I agree with you. I think they're tier three, but I think it's also extremely important for us to acknowledge that because it was never just about the music with TLC, it's important to account for the literal 20 years of pain that is watching T-Boz and Chili continue the legacy. Right. And maybe if they had just really officially disbanded, then obviously this wouldn't be a consideration. But I do think we can't just ignore the long tail of TLC's afterlife just because it's painful. (laughs) 
one thing I was thinking about as I was sort of wrapping up my research for this is how much of Tiba's and Chili's necessity to drag this out has to do with how fucked over financially they were. The truth is they never got to cash out in the way that they wanted to ever. You know, even when they renegotiated their deal for fan mail, they did this big tour for fan mail that ended up getting fucked up partially because Lisa didn't really want to participate in it. They canceled half the dates. They had to turn down money. So they never really got remunerated in the way that would be commensurate with the level of success that they have. And I wonder if part of the reason we see T-Boz and Chili trekking out on the road this year with fucking Shaggy as a co-headlining tour, which is really fucking bleak feeling to me, given the disparity between their two legacies or whatever. I wonder if it's just sheerly necessity that they just have to do it. They have to keep working in this particular way, in a way that they probably shouldn't have to, given how successful they were in the moment. So yes, I agree with you. But I also think they are taken more seriously when looked back upon than like the Spice Girls are in some ways. I even think in some ways that even a Britney or somebody is. I think that there's a sense that they were real, meaningful contributors to culture, art, music in a way that supersedes some of these other acts of their era. So I think that there is a sense of respect for what they did musically that is greater than some of the people that they get put next to sometimes from their era. I think tier three seems to be the right answer. There's certain elements to their legacy that could bump them even a little higher. And then there's certain ones that could bump them a little lower. So that feels like the square place to put them. Yeah. I don't know. I think the fact that we are trying to insert the craziness of their story within these tiers is what makes it so much more emotional for me because yeah. you think about you were the best selling girl group of all time, just like hard numbers and you are well into your fifties now and you still need to tour. Yeah. It's bleak. It's really bleak. And it makes you think about the situation that Megan the Stallion was in. Mm-hmm. This is the story of what it means to be not only a woman in music, but a black woman in music. hundred percent. And I hope if there's some way that the way that they got fucked over could be reintroduced as an aspect for how TLC ended, even though it's ending is never ending, I think would be really critical for people in terms of understanding what the nineties were. Right. And I think not to bring up our last episode, but it gives me a sense of greater compassion or understanding for Beyonce's constant celebration of her wealth accumulation because she's doing so in the face of these histories. And that is a part of it is she is attempting to rewrite the way that black women have been treated in this industry by having this 25 year celebration of her accruement of wealth as a huge underpinning of her work. So I feel like we're good on that. Last question for you. What is an underrated TLC song? Something we have not spoken about yet that we could send the show out on. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I want to choose something Wicked This Way Comes. Okay. Closes out Crazy Sexy Cool, mostly because, again, I'm so obsessed with Atlanta being the kind of fertile ground that produced all of these mega stars and mm-hmm. Andre 3000, who at that point was not known by that. He was Dre. Dre. And this upcoming group, Outcast, having this kind of screed in the beginning against the commercialism of the age. He like takes a shot against Michael Jackson, which I think is amazing because it shows the intergenerational strife. And for TLC to have been the host for that kind of conversation, especially when you think about the way that the South has been disrespected in the history of hip hop. Obviously they have songs 
in their catalog that are interested in antagonism, but not many that are taking the music industry to task. Yeah. And I love that they were the host for who would become arguably the best lyricists of all time to sort of settle this argument into the cultural sphere. It's such a great one. I love going out on this one, A, because obviously their music business strife defines a lot of their story, as we've talked about, and also because one thing that we didn't get to touch on in Crazy Sexy Cool, that's one of the fun aspects of it, is the way that all of these canonical, really important male rappers are just accent pieces throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Everyone from Buster Rhymes <laughs> to Diddy to Fife Dog, they're all just there on the periphery as little bells and whistles around the inferno of TLC that are the centerpiece of this whole thing. And once again here with Andre 3000. So incredible song. Let's go out on something wicked this way comes. Doreen, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon TLC, a certified tier three superstar group. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the absolutely incredible Doreen San Felix for being such an amazing guest. I want to thank Russ Martin for everything he does to make this podcast happen every week, to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and to Alexandra Lobo, who helps us with our artwork. Thank you, Alexandra. Please follow the podcast at Pop Pantheon Pod on both Twitter and Instagram, me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcast shop our merch at poppantheonpod.com join patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon for bonus content discord and so much more and we'll see you here next week for our final installment in our girl group trilogy until then have a wonderful life bye bye (laughs) 